it's best when you listen to the whole thing. It is. It's true. Motherfucker. You know what? No regrets. Welcome to Super Superstitious. I'm Jake. I'm Wyatt. This is the Paranormal Podcast, where we talk about spooky Science stuff. Science is all about learning the truth. What on earth is that? <laughs> Science is all about learning the truth. I mean, he was on to the next <laughs> half of that sentence, which is <laughs> exactly. that we, uh, we, exactly. talk about, we break down... Uh, <laughs> Spooky stuff with <laughs> science and trying to learn the truth. Or I don't know what he was saying, but preempted us. Yeah, that was weird. That was YouTube, everyone. Um, but yeah, we're back and we are in part one of another two-part super duperstitious special report. It has been a while since we've done one, and we thought, hey, we should do one. Let's. <laughs> yeah, exactly so that's what, what we're we doing. said. And the topic for this particular special report is going to be. Uh, how do you want to word it? Why? I'd say like the... Um, hmm. Well, I like... S- well, go ahead. I was going to say I liked uh, the way you put it in a shared draft that we have on our Google Doc, which is belief in the bogus or sort of the susceptibility of the mind to, I don't know, what would you say, big fish stories type stuff? Yeah, I guess just... Um, I think Maybe the, I'm putting it wrong. The general thing we're going for is people believing in... Different, um, you know, paranormal or whatever type of stories, in spite of so much evidence to the contrary. Yeah, that's exactly. There you have it. We cover a lot of stuff on this show that either is unsolved or sometimes things that we think are pretty much debunked, but right. still fun. What we want to talk about now is when stuff has been pretty thoroughly debunked, people still absolutely believe it, and the weird phenomenon of, of that happening. Right. So we'll do our usual deal with the special reports, where the first episode will be more like a normal episode. Right. And we will have two stories for you with uh, on this particular theme. We'll break them down a little bit like we normally do. And then next week, we'll get much deeper into the science, the psychology, all of the things that go towards explaining why this shit happens to people. Well said. Exactly. So uh, I believe today our topics kind of dovetail nicely together. They just so happen to be somewhat E.T. related again. They do. We did a special report on E.T.'s uh, sort of as a phenomenon unto themselves. It was back our first in, special report, in indeed fact. Indeed it, it was. That was what, episodes... 13 and 14. There you have it. And, January um, of this year. It feels like so long ago and yesterday at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we invite listeners to check those out if you want a more deep dive into just that kind of topic. But uh, either way, today we've got similar stuff and I'll just kick it right off, I guess. Make so, it happen. So, um, for today, I'd like to let the blog Things That Go Bump in the Night set the scene. Dot blogspot or mm, dot wordpress? Dot blogspot, indeed. (laughs) Set the scene for today, just before I get to my cold open, as uh, I found (laughs) this during my search for my topic today. As with all well-written pieces, I'd just (laughs) like to uh, read this straight using no voices and doing as little editing as I can to preserve its quality. (laughs) So that's a good sign. The word Fresno is Spanish for ash tree, a city located in the San Juan Joaquin Valley region surrounded by the Sierra Mountains. Fresno has a bad rap, W-R-A-P. Most people who live (laughs) here their whole life act like it's a cesspool. Everybody hates Fresno and wants to move out, and people who aren't from here hate it even more. Like all great cities, people from them have a love-hate relationship, or just a hate relationship. (laughs) People who live in New York City and Los Angeles City always complain about it, and people from Fresno do the same. At one time, Fresno was the car theft and meth capital of the world, and is still home to all sorts of violent crimes. 
we have some of the worst air quality due, Dio, to agricultural dust, <laughs> pesticides, car emissions, and smog from other cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, which are blown into the valley and trapped within the mountainous dust bowl. <laughs> Our agriculture feeds most of the world, not true, and most of Fresno is very <laughs> green, but people act like we live in the black and white Kansas of Wizard of Oz. <laughs> there are very ugly parts of Fresno covered in dry, dead grass and hard pan soil. Buildings are cheaply painted and covered in graffiti art or gang tagging. Most of Fresno is very nice, covered in trees and all sorts of greenery, as well as its agricultural farming. Already mentioned that. The buildings and shopping centers are commonly tan or white, with Spanish tile roofs. The climate here is harsh, and we experience years of severe drought and monsoon rainstorms. Only happen in Southeast Asia. Okay, maybe not literally. <laughs> But after a long drought, a huge rainstorm can cause flash floods around the more mountainous areas. Because Fresno is a desert, we have warm days and cold nights and all sorts of schizophrenic weather patterns. As of writing this article, it has been 90 and 100 degrees this week in May, and tomorrow <laughs> we are expecting rain. Fresno is yin and yang. It has some good and it has some bad. <laughs> we are called the armpit of California and we are referenced in every B-grade sci-fi film <laughs> without fail but Fresno also has a dark history too involving all sorts of evil <laughs> think what you may about this Central Valley City but know this there are stranger things in Fresno <laughs> oh it came back <laughs> So I feel like I know a lot more about Fresno now. Yep. So with that as the <laughs> backdrop, <laughs> November 2007, and it is night in Fresno, California. After hearing dogs barking furiously in the night for many days on end, a local man named Jose decides... A localman. A localman <laughs> named Jose decides to set up a security camera above his garage. Perhaps a burglar or animal was ca uh, casing his home, was causing his home to exist. Perhaps it was nothing. Given it was 2007, it's safe to say that once the camera was set up, Jose was able to tuck his eyes into an eight-year-old DVD of The Matrix, enjoy the fast-paced and well-choreographed <laughs> fighting moves, and, if I'm being perfectly honest, frankly revolutionary special effects for the time. <laughs> All with the peace of mind that only a very low-resolution, IR-capable, late-90s consumer-level security camera can provide. <laughs> As was expected, the story goes, sometime during the night the dogs went mad, barking furiously at something outside. But when Jose reviewed the footage the next day, what he saw was enough to shock him into calling the police. Mm. Amazingly, the footage showed a pair of strange, small creatures, only a few feet in height, walking across the screen. You can probably remember the Fresno footage, but we can watch it again now if you like. Yeah, this is something that I have seen before. I don't know the full story of it. That's why I'm happy to listen to it all in full today. So we have a uh, very, very grainy <laughs> like uh, you security can, camera footage. You can barely make out the numbers, if I'm honest. I mean, they're there, but... 1240. Yeah, it's it's rough. And then you this see is a the pair... Of, this is the second of the two creatures, too. Like, okay, so this is... It looks like a pair of pants. Walks, disembodied pair of pants walks across <laughs> the screen from left to right. It does. Now the thing about it's yeah, it's a um it's basically a pair of legs that meet in this one point in the middle mm -hmm. um from which they're pivoting and that's it to them. They kind of flop back and forth. Yeah, the thing and it moves walks forward. Along. It's very odd. It's, it's very, very odd. Um pretty unique looking 
thing. Yes, indeed. Uh, the beings appear to be exactly as Jake has said, nothing more than two whitish legs attached to a very small, almost non-existent torso. They wriggle across the screen in a kind of loose, Gumby-like fashion, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> I feel like well, Gumby more kind of lifts one leg and skates on the other foot. That's true. <laughs> that's rather true. to animate the walking motion. That is, uh, yeah, so not, not Gumby-like at all in that case. <laughs> Many of our younger listeners will probably not even know what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> one leg swinging somewhat in front of the other in a marionette-like stride. As neither the uh, Jose nor the police could figure out what the beings were, the footage and story spread. The original VHS tape on which this was recorded was never directly copied. Hmm. Instead, the footage was recorded off of Jose's screen by a local newswoman. MUFON was then contacted to validate the video. MUFON! And was sent a digitized version of the newswoman's recording. That's like three layers now. This was later shown at a seminar, played via a laptop, and displayed through a projector... The projected footage was then <laughs> recorded by someone in the audience, <laughs> and only then was any of it uploaded to the internet for Jesus us to assess. Christ. <laughs> and that's why the footage is so good. <laughs> <laughs> See, the more technology you apply to any given thing, the better the quality is, because technology makes things more high-tech. Exactly. If you've seen any TV show where the police office has the screen that's able to enhance the grainy footage and you actually get more information out of that footage it's because they're applying another layer of technology yes to the footage yeah because the first layer of technology wasn't able to record that much information but when you add an additional layer of technology to help it it, it's, it gets more information that wasn't already there to begin with exactly because that's how everything works it's just math really um so <laughs> it's after it was uploaded to the internet that people went bonkers and in relatively little time this grainy footage became the object of exhaustive analysis and speculation Mm -hmm. naturally two opposing camps emerged real and hoax those speculating that the footage was of actual living beings have offered that what was captured was none other than a couple e's to the t if you (laughs) will um eats uh despite this the nightcrawlers have strode their way into the cryptid pile weirdly enough of paranormal phenomena don't really know why but people sort of have insisted that they live there for the time being rather than the kind of like possible ets yeah i think people tend to refer to i mean kind of like the dover demon for example too where it's like oh it's Hmm. kind of an alien type looking thing but it also maybe it's some creature not knowing the origin of a thing but thinking that it is some kind of flesh and blood creature as opposed to supernatural ghosty thing I guess that's enough to classify as a cryptid for people these days. True that. Um, So four years later, after the original video, much to the internet's collective amazement, another video surfaces. This time from a security camera from a private property inside Yosemite National Park. Oh. And incidentally, one of my favorite comments on this video is, Hey, baby, do those legs go all the way up? (laughs) Nice. Um, Because internet video. And in this one, rather than walking sort of towards the camera, we can see the similar sort of laundry sheets <laughs> galumphing past Very some trees. Very slowly loping along. And there's a pair of them. Right. Uh, two different pairs of legs. So two of these creature things walking along. They walk behind this tree. Keep on going. And they're, yeah, tall, pale, and they're basically only pairs of legs. And they're moving at a much sort of more contemplative pace, I guess you could say, in this one than in the first. Although in the first video, 
the first creature comes across the screen on its own, and it barely moves its legs. Mm. The second one moves its legs a lot, very visibly, and moves at quite a quicker pace. That's something to bear in mind for next time. Mm. In this one, they both have a clear movement of the old uh, the old gams. Mm-hmm. Um, One's a little bit taller than the other. Exactly, which is also consistent with the first video, leading some to believe that it was a copycat. Mm. Also, the story behind this video was similar as well. The homeowner of this private property apparently was concerned about break-ins at uh, his or her property, sets up the security camera. Upon reviewing the footage, they are similarly stunned by these uh, strange beings. So... All in all, they're said to be, I mean, by people's estimations, they're about three to four feet in height at the most. Mm -hmm. So kind of diminutive. Uh, So despite the fact that what we're looking at is basically haunted pants, (laughs) even now, 10 to 20 years after the initial footage, most places you surf to on the old net have left the Fresno Nightcrawlers in the unexplained sort of unfinished pile, if you will. So... Mm -hmm. This may in part be due to the fact, or faked, that the show Fact or Faked took the Fresno <laughs> case on. Uh, we can listen to them now doing their own incisive breakdown in a clip. As you'll hear, it left what sounds like a pretty experienced team just absolutely stumped. Um, just <laughs> I do miss that show. So they're watching the video. There's a creature coming what from the top that? left of the screen. I, I don't know what it is but it's not like any of the other cryptoids or Bigfoot or anything else we've seen before. <laughs> Look, you can almost see the little legs at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see its shadow as well. It's very long. Notice that it has a, a head. I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. It's, it's, really, it's weird. I don't know what, what else to call it. Now, what's this one coming in here? Oh, my what? God. Yeah, a what is he doing? What he's doing is walking. (laughs) Anatomically speaking, I've never seen anything that looks like either of these figures before. Now, naturally, he might have described these as just pants. (laughs) That said, I myself can't think of anything anatomical these beings resemble either. I would love to say that they look just like two wobbly legs, but legs, as we all know are the only non-anatomical parts of the body. That's true. Little known science fact. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the team ultimately fails to make Gene spooky. Instead, they use, among other things, a little child and the tried and true weird-ass puppet to try to replicate the original video. Basically, they set a security camera up at the house, same place, and then do all these things to try to restage the same stunt. Right. But they fail in both cases, and they leave it as... Sort of an unexplained, unconcluded case. I always liked Factor Fake because it was like Mythbusters with no expertise. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. If I can't make this exact thing happen myself with absolutely no no skills required to make this particular setup happen, well then it must be real. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly kind of what happened. Their (laughs) highly public failure to debunk the event wound up affording it a kind of hollow badge of legitimacy yeah so you know of course if this team of tv investigators can't disprove the possibility of the video being real maybe these scary slacks are actually whatever you think they are (laughs) and many others have given replication of the fresno crawlers a shot with no success but also more about that next week Mm -hmm. um next week after next next episode (laughs) next episode 
So what if we say they actually are alive and I think not... they actually are pants. No lie. I, that's what I originally wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I can't. I have to talk about them being actual creatures. Lame. Dumb. So they actually are alive. What if they actually are alive? Sorry. As the Nightcrawlers journeyed into the machine of redundant, nearly never-ending analysis and speculation, relevant articles began to mention another source of validation. Photos of carved wooden sculptures closely resembling the Nightcrawler entities. Have you seen these before? I don't think I have. Let me quickly find a picture. (laughs) (laughs) You want me to pause? Yeah. Okay. So these up here. Oh, wow. They are strikingly similar. Yeah, they're like wooden, well, look like a pair of wooden legs with a wooden head on top. Uh, yeah, interesting. There's a pair structures. of them. They are in every way similar to what we see in the video, as far as what we can make out in the video. Yeah, basically a head with wobbly legs. Right. And so these pictures pop up. Pictures apparently came from a source in Florida who, in turn, claims they were simply passed on to him by a woman in New Jersey. Whatever their lineage, the pictures Bequeathed themselves... To him from a woman in New Jersey upon her death. <laughs> the pictures themselves, by many accounts, were originally taken in California outside of a DMV, apparently. <laughs> uh, before long, it was suggested that the creatures were related to Native American legends, strange and quite literally otherworldly beings that have visited this planet for hundreds of years or more, their gangly legs suited, apparently, to navigating the swampy habitat of their home world. <laughs> Now, despite the fact that I found absolutely no firm evidence supporting this, so all my usual (laughs) indigenous Native American lore sites that I use, which just sounds hilarious (laughs) to me for some reason, but nowhere could I find any kind of, like, tale that mentions these guys. Right. Um, And could we confirm that the um, sculptures were actually located where they supposedly were in California outside of DMV or whatever? I haven't physically done that. I haven't used You Google haven't gone to California to look for them? <laughs> I haven't seen it with my own eyes that I don't believe it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I have not done due diligence there outside of several sites saying the same thing. Gotcha. So I'm maybe falling looked, into the it same looked trap. To me, like from at least one of those photos, maybe a couple of them, they look kind of like they're in a statue park. So they could easily just be yeah, just true. art installments from the present day. Right, which is what many have uh, suggested as well, right. that they're like commissioned works for any kind of corporate building or what have you, or a park, yeah. yeah. But the argument, even in that scenario, is that they may still represent these, you know, folkloric beings that um, indigenous Americans have been talking about. Yeah. Can you hand me that specimen vial that's behind your laptop? Thank you. Oh, it's gone. Damn it. I was going to try to catch the fly. I've caught like seven of these things so far. Just wow. With that? Yeah. How? I don't. I think they're uh, new brood of flies that are pretty young and they're like, pretty slow. Over the last day or so, they've gotten a lot faster and more normal fly-like. I think he's intentionally fucking with me now. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh so close. I'll leave it there. Sure. So, right. People have taken this story as kind of just full-on validation of the idea that these things might be real and not Mm -hmm. just real but extraterrestrial or fully on paranormal in some way or another yeah um often perhaps fortunately the sites left to retell the narrative are joanna level kooktown so just a quick taste uh this is indian in the machine dot wordpress dot com 
Quote, the aliens called Nightwalkers have been known to the native of California, the American Indians, for generations. Uh, I like that they started off with just saying, the aliens called Nightwalkers. <laughs> There's no argument. There's no suggestion. Um, they had conscious contact with them before the rule restricting conscious contact was imposed by the Council of Worlds, obviously. The Nightwalkers <laughs> are resident aliens in the service to other orientation prefer to remain in third density for the many visitations they perform they have allowed themselves to be captured on film and undeniably alien form for life for earth i should say uh to assist the awakening are you sure Joanna didn't write this she may have <laughs> so leaving that behind we can also look to other kinds of sightings that resemble night crawlers so there is the carmel area creature which has a nice sort of allure to yes, it. Yes, it does. Um, so way across the country in Carmel, Ohio, a 60-year-old ex-Marine and his wife were driving around on December 12th, 2014, when they came up over a hill and saw a seven-foot-tall slender gray creature lumbering along the road. Whoa. Um, so far, that sounds more like my kind of shit. Indeed. Yeah. No, this is actually... I kind of like this one. <laughs> of anything I have for today, I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. Um... <laughs> This is all quotes from the couple. I think the wife is the one who tells most of the account, but it wasn't clear from the page I went to, which was uh, cryptids, as well as the Highland County Press, which is the local paper of the area. But, quote, um, I would like to get this information out in your area in hopes that maybe someone else has seen it or that their giant crossbred ostrich got loose or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of reminds me of the Mayaka skunk ape. Uh, yeah, case. someone be like, "Oh, there's something. There's this one orangutan on the loose. Can someone get it?" Uh, I'm afraid of people getting sick. <laughs> um, so yeah, quote: We recently brought uh, bought a place in the Fort Hill area. We first noticed after about 30 days of living here that we suddenly have a perfect circle that stays fresh green no matter what weather in our front yard. So a perfect circle of grass, presumably. On Friday night, the 12th, we were driving home. After turning on Carmel Road, which leads to our road, we went around the curve by the Carmel Church and then up a small incline and approximately 10 feet over the incline in front of our truck, the, in light quotes, alien ran across the road and into the woods. My husband saw it. He is a skeptic, almost 60 years old, and a proud Marine. He wouldn't have admitted to seeing it if he, if he hadn't been in shock. I had him draw it for me when we got to the house. He says it was asphalt gray. And then she puts in parentheses, our asphalt is gray <laughs> um, and about seven feet tall. No arms that he could see, but muscular in the legs area. No jawline, but its legs were bent backward and it leaned forward as it ran. And the husband, uh, the doodle, looks like this. Okay, so it has a little bit more torso involved to it than the uh, Fresno Exactly, exactly. Um, not identical, more torso. This was much taller. Mm -hmm. And uh, the legs in the Fresno crawler and the Yosemite crawler version um, are basically seem jointless to me. Yeah, they just flop around. Just flop, flopping around. But it is similar otherwise. In the sense that it's basically just legs and nothing else. Right. Yeah, it's a loose similarity, I guess. A uh, theory I like very much for this one is that the older couple may have actually seen a gazelle with its forelimbs drawn in towards the body as it ran in fear. Hmm. Um, not something that I've really ever seen myself, but they do tuck their legs in when they're going to maybe jump or do a quick bounce away. And uh, on a profile, it does look like a creepy beast with, like, no arms or body, you know, mm -hmm. well, 
somebody, but you know, a lengthy legged creature. And this um, was in Ohio, you said? In Ohio. Are there a lot of gazelles in Ohio? I don't know. Let me, <laughs> let me look at that up now. I'm going to go with probably not. Gazelles being a largely African species. What the f- What were people thinking? What was I thinking? Do they have anything like gazelles up there? Probably a deer. Probably a deer then. Yeah, it could have just been a deer. Okay, so then again, who knows? It's kind of a one-off story. It's still weirdly more convincing to me than even the videos, despite the fact that it's inconclusive in its own way. Yeah. Anyhow, since I've basically been talking about how a whole lot of people can lose their minds over about 60 seconds worth of potentially possessed pants, <laughs> and I'm intentionally saving my debunkifying till next week, I think I'll let things that go bump in the night take us back home. <laughs> um, here's the very tail end of the same article I used to start my segment. All right. This section is titled, My Involvement. And, uh, yeah, I hope you'll enjoy. <laughs> Lay it on me. <laughs> Let me just turn my computer down. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I grew in a family very open-minded to extraterrestrials and ghosts. My mother and grandfather believe in ancient astronaut theory and UFOs possessive. They weren't super invested into the theory, just that it made sense that perhaps aliens splice their own DNA with ours. I grew up with That's shows like Sightings, Unsolved Mysteries, X-Files, and I practically wore out my VHS copy of Ghostbusters. As an adult and a security guard working in Fresno County for the past seven years, I have had my own experiences with the unusual. I have seen strange things in the corner of my eyes, had premonitions before coming close to death or serious injuries and have dealt with lower-level demonic attacks. <laughs> Honestly, Just I can't... lower-level, not a big deal. <laughs> Honestly, I can't say I have a lot of experience, and I am not looking for it either. I enjoy writing speculative pieces on cryptozoological creatures and urban legends. I also love to share my passion for Christian legends and folklore and the history of church and the saints. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the whole is that his whole story <laughs> okay the end <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to tell some story about something All right. <laughs> that was his involvement oh okay wow yep thanks uh, what's the username the governator <laughs> or just governator oh so, so this so is Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> thanks Arnold yep uh, and uh, yeah, that's so, uh, my weird ass segment for today. Please, very weird ass stuff. I think yeah. So we're gonna talk about it more next week. I'm sure, as you said. So I won't get into too much about discussing it now. But I do think it's worth uh, you know if you're listening, check out the links we send for the videos themselves. Make your own opinion of what you think the hell is going on. What I find most striking about the videos is that they are clearly physically real. Yeah. As far as people saying like, oh, they're they're real things. They seem to actually be in the camera frame. Right. They're probably actually there. But what they actually are yeah. is very much up for debate. Apparently, the second of the two, the Yosemite series, some believe it to be CGI. Interesting. Um, I'll have to rewatch that one again because I've only yeah. ever seen the original more so. It's very different looking. It's very odd. If you don't expect it going in, it is pretty odd and kind of eerie. Right. Once you've decided that you don't believe it's a real alien creature, <laughs> it's unbelievably It's just goofy. pants again. Yeah. <laughs> so, it really is. So, yeah. Have a have a look, and uh, we'll talk about it more next week. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. 
good so, stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Mr. Shell. Mm, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, take us away. First, can we get some of that Daikaiju? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, much better. It's been a while since we've talked about the beers we're drinking on air. We're always drinking beer when you're listening to us. That is never not true. Indeed. Uh, we just haven't mentioned them on recording in a while. Right now mm-hmm. we're drinking Daikaiju by the artist formerly known as Banded Horn Brewing Company. Ooh. Went through a major rebranding recently. Ooh. Now they're just Banded Brewing. Banded and, Brewing. And they have really beautiful art on their cans and stuff now, too. And the beers have always been great. But the, the beer is the, very, very good. The visual rebranding has been solid as hell. So we'll have a picture posted as well of this can. It's just so nice. Hell yeah. Should we and Daikaiju is pretty uh, appropriate to the stuff we do. We're not talking about giant ocean monsters right now. But no, indeed. But we have in the past. More than once, if yes. I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, you know, I like to think of our podcast as a giant ocean monster, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Me too, Why? Yep. Me too. What I have for us today is a topic that I've thought about covering, but never really known when to tackle. Not because it isn't interesting, it is for sure interesting, but because it's so widely known as to be basically like ubiquitous. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it's hard to decide, you know, when to drop the most famous UFO account ever. <laughs> I also oh don't want to cover something that people God. just already know about in detail, or at least not in a manner that is just, you know, hitting beat after beat of stuff people already know. Right. We respect the intelligence of you, the listeners, too much for that. It would be like a you know true crime podcast nowadays covering the Hinterkaifeck murders as if they're something novel and uh, exciting. Anyone with even a passing interest in the subject already knows about it. So Most already involved will yes. have some familiarity. And if you're not initiated, then it's like, okay, it's a new thing for some people, so give enough information for the new people that they understand, but not so much that you're boring the, the already the hard initiated. The pros. Yes. The Hinterkaifeck murders, incidentally, are very cool if you've not heard about them. Yeah, pretty neat stuff. Interesting old 1920s German murder mystery never been solved. Exactly. Um, And and by cool, I mean cool is proportional to how terrifying it would be to experience. (laughs) (laughs) Murder's always sad. Um, (laughs) Speak for yourself, (laughs) jeez. Um, the way I think to do this is to give a brief rundown of the story everyone knows and then focus more on what really happened um, and how people ever got from the one story to the other. Mm-hmm. With that huge disclaimer out of the way, <laughs> we can begin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's start first with what definitely, absolutely, 100% happened, mm-hmm. and then a brief recap of what the story then became, and then we'll get into just how far we got from reality as time went on and why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. During the summer of 1947... There were sightings of some sort of flying discs in New Mexico. These are generally associated with the U.S. Army Air Force uh, before the Air Force became its own separate entity from the Army. Mm-hmm. I think that same September of that year is when they became their own separate entity as oh. the U.S. Air Force. Interesting. Uh, but no one ever really knew what these discs were. It's during this time, in fact, that the term flying saucer was first coined. Mm-hmm. Sometime in late June or early July of that summer, a foreman at the Foster Homestead named William Mac Brazel found some weird debris in the desert about 30 miles north of the town of Roswell, New Mexico. We're going there, people. We're going there. In an interview for the Roswell Daily Record, Brazel said that he and his son had seen, quote, a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tinfoil, and rather tough paper and sticks. Cool. Mm-hmm. He didn't think much of it at first glance, but later came back on July 4th with his wife, son, and daughter to gather up some of the stuff they found. Because you don't find desert tinfoil and not take it. They found the first Burning Man. (laughs) Yes. Actually, desert tinfoil gathering used to be the primary tradition in the Southwest for the 4th of July. 
Hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I'll quote some more from that same 1947 Roswell Daily Record article here. Quote, Monday he came to town to sell some wool, and while there he went to see Sheriff George Wilcox and, quote, whispered kind of confidential-like, end quote, <laughs> that he might have found a flying disc. Sounds like the start of a weird limerick. <laughs> yes. It's also really tempting to read all of this newspaper article quotes in uh, transatlantic Transatlantic, I was going to say. 40s. I, when I was reading it to myself, I only pictured it in my head that way. Um, Try a little bit, won't you? Wilcock got in touch with the Roswell Army Airfield and Major Jesse A. Marcel and a man in plain clothes accompanied him home. If you please. <laughs> well, they picked up the rest of the pieces of the disc and went to his home <laughs> to try to reconstruct it. Nice. Uh, they were not able to do so. Uh-huh. That said, it overall appeared to be some kind of mechanical device that would have been suspended from a balloon, as far as they could tell. Mm-hmm. The Roswell Army Airfield then gave a press release. Quote, the many rumors regarding the flying disks became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disk through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disk until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, hmm. who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disk was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. Hmm. So the higher-ups who received the debris confirmed that it was indeed a weather balloon and its radar reflector used for tracking the balloons from the ground, mm-hmm. and that was that as far as anyone needed to know. Right. For his part, Brazel said he didn't see it fall from the sky. He only found it after it had crash-landed and was all smashed. However, he also said that he had twice before found fallen weather balloons on the Foster Ranch, but that this looked nothing at all like those. Mm-hmm. But after a press conference in which the Army folks confirmed the weather balloonness of the fallen object, <laughs> uh, including a display of the debris itself for the public to see that it totally was that, uh, the story basically died the next day. Right. A balloon had crashed in the desert, a guy had found it, end of story. Which, totally appropriate. Yeah. So why the hell is Roswell synonymous with extraterrestrials and crashed spaceships and government cover-ups? Where do these conspiracies even come from? It's because people are stupid, Jake. (laughs) Well, my dear Mr. Shell, we have (laughs) UFO enthusiasts 30 years after the fact to thank for all of this. Uh, B.D. Gildenberg has an excellent description of the fact in his 2003 piece for Skeptic Magazine entitled... You know what BD stands for? Uh, Brass Dendrology. Damn, how did you fucking guess that? Yes. Uh, In a piece for Skeptic Magazine entitled A Roswell Requiem, (laughs) he said, quote, Because most readers have known the Roswell myth for most or all of their lives, one really essential part of the picture has been frequently forgotten or glossed over. For more than 30 years, no one anywhere cared about the incident at Roswell. (laughs) No one. (laughs) It wasn't part of the ufologist lore, nor was it an issue for critics of the paranormal, nor was it part of science fiction or tabloid entertainment. It was a forgotten footnote, not because it was cleverly concealed, but because it was a lousy case. Holy shit, people straight rebooted this thing? Yeah, 30 years after it happened. uh, It really was open and shut with the balloon chunks and the identification as such. It said, hey, it's a balloon. Okay, it's a balloon. All right, over with. Oh, my God. But obviously... This is just what the military wanted us to think. Wyatt. Yeah, right. There right. was a major cover-up going on, and all the weather balloon shit was just to shut people up so they wouldn't talk about the real story. Mm-hmm. I may have said all that tongue-in-cheek just now, but it actually was 100% true. Mm-hmm. There was a cover-up, and the balloon story was to placate the public. So, between 1978 and the early 1990s, 
A series of ufologists started digging into the story and concluded that because of the many UFO reports at the same time as the incident, something else must have been going on. And I'll stress again here, they were right about that fact, just as they were right to correlate the UFO sightings with the Roswell incident. They were not coincidences, but independent facts. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they were digging into something that there was something to. So UFO researchers, including Stanton T. Friedman, William Moore, Carl T. Flock, Kevin D. Randall, Donald R. Schmidt, and others, all these household names. I mean, yeah, um, I don't even know why I have to read them off. Altogether interviewed hundreds of alleged witnesses to the events uh, uh, in 1947, as well as pulled hundreds of documents through the Freedom of Information Act, which first became effective in 1967. Hmm. So at that point, all those documents that were by then declassified or at least somehow available, they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. With this many sources on the subject, juicy stuff was bound to be uncovered. The really exciting discoveries came when Friedman interviewed Jesse Marcel, who you may remember as the Army Major from the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office, who worked at the Roswell Army Airfield, and who was the only one to see the wreckage throughout the process from recovery at Basil's house to delivery at Fort Worth for inspection. I mean, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned him a couple times before in my account today. So oh. he's, he's the name of the major they contacted who came. And I guess I said his name while I was doing the transatlantic thing. But you mentioned his... Yeah, yeah it was yeah. lost in the accent. It was. But that much background, but I figured, yeah, major, was... Yeah, Major Marcel is... Um, he was the one who came and like handled stuff. And he was the only person to see the wreckage from beginning to end effe- right. effectively. Right. And he had some shit to say. Quote... We found all kinds of stuff. Small beams about three-eighths or half an inch square with some sort of hieroglyphics on them that uh, nobody the could weird decipher. weird writing. Yep, yep, yep. These looked something like balsa wood and were of about the same weight, although flexible and would not burn. There's a great deal of unusual parchment-like substance, which was brown in color and extremely strong, and a great number of small pieces of metal like tinfoil, except that it wasn't tinfoil. <laughs> He's just was, like stirring up the soup right now yeah, so hard. Exactly. Also, I like that he would try to burn stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't burn no matter how hard I tried. Everything else would go up. In other descriptions, they're talking about like, taking acetylene torches to them to try and see if it would burn. It's like, why? How is what that were your you first? Doing? Yeah. This is just how you explore everything you don't <laughs> yeah, understand? Exactly. Does it burn? The parchment writing, quote, had little numbers and symbols that we had to call hieroglyphics because I could not understand them. They were pink and purple. It looked like they were painted on. These little numbers could not be broken, could not be burned, wouldn't even smoke. So again, try to destroy everything you find to understand what it is. It said Mike and Ike. <laughs> is that pink and purple? It's probably pink and white or something. I think they're, yeah, pink and white, I think. Oh, God um, so already we went from pieces of rubber foil and balsa wood held together with what everyone present described as scotch tape. Nerds. <laughs> to fantastical out-of-this-world materials with unidentifiable marks. Uh, clearly, we weren't given the whole story at first. And indeed, other reports from other witnesses who totally didn't come out of the woodwork claimed some very amazing properties of these materials indeed. For example, the balsa-like material, which was, and I can't stress this enough, not balsa wood, (laughs) had memory. Uh, It could be bent into different shapes and then would return to its original shape on its own. Hmm. The paper did it too. Didn't even show any wrinkles. Either that or neither of the materials could be bent or broken or manipulated at all. One of those two things. Either they couldn't be bent at all or they could, but then they returned to their shape. Okay, right. whatever. Whatever. One of those two things. They're miraculous. But wait, there's more. (gasps) In other reports, Marcel would go so far as to say that once the debris was in military custody, they were able to reconstruct the craft and even get it operational to the point where he himself was able to pilot the thing around. Oh my God, this guy. (laughs) 
Big Fish McGillicuddy over so here. So this is the same guy who boasted about having shot down five enemy aircraft in his time with the Air Force, in spite of the weird fact that he actually wasn't a pilot at all and had never flown anything from Earth, let alone <laughs> a crashed spaceship. This dude is just, like, pathological. But we can probably overlook that fact. I mean, he's probably uh, telling the truth is what he's doing. <laughs> exactly. Pathological truth teller is what <laughs> exactly, I was going to yes. finish my statement with. His uh, military personnel file even had reports from his commanding officer saying that he was prone to extreme exaggeration, ranging from embellishment of details to straight-up fabrication. Oh, boy. But again, that's probably nothing. The fact that he's the key witness. Fabrication of facts. Exactly. And embellishment of more facts. I don't know. <laughs> what would you say? Just, just adding more facts he's to facts. He's a legit facts, dude, yeah. <laughs> Much like the technology, the more facts you add. <laughs> yeah, it becomes more true. Exactly. Which is actually kind of true. Subsequent accounts of Roswell would reveal the continued searches of the desert using the spread of debris to calculate crash trajectory and such found another crash site, the sort of main crash site, if you will, where the rest of the wreckage was. This included a larger vessel of some kind, likely what was later hmm. reconstructed from Marcel to zoom around in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and either next to or inside this vessel were four bodies. And those bodies were not human. Oh boy, oh boy. So This is where most people tune into this story, by the way. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, these bodies found in New Mexico? Like that? Yeah, that's mm. crazy. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a big jump from the genuinely boring story we're fed about the facts or whatever, and the decidedly <laughs> more colorful account that would follow. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to explain this discrepancy? I mean, one is to accept in our hearts that all of the other stuff is bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Roswell incident really just demonstrates a public willingness to believe some very elaborate and logistically improbable stuff. Mm-hmm. So how do we get from the simple discovery of some balloon shit to the biggest UFO conspiracy of all time? Well, as I hinted, there was a cover-up. Can you think of anything historically that might have been going on at the time that might have warranted a cover-up, Wyatt? Would this be... Something between, say, 1945 and 1989. Bomb testing Might have been kind? a big deal to the U.S. military. Some kind of explosive device? I mean, yeah, so the Cold War in general and oh, bomb okay. testing happening overall. My, my so that Cold you, War, you, though. You are totally right, though, as far as the actual intent behind what was going on, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that in a second. The actual cover-up that occurred uh, even involved the sexy, secret-sounding name of Project Mogul. Okay. This whole time, I'm wondering where plog- Project project Blue Book falls into the mix. Well, I was going to say, note that this is part of Project Mogul, not part of Project Blue Book. There you go. Uh, the Air Force's series of systematic studies into UFOs. Mm-hmm. Note, furthermore, that the Roswell incident was never reported as part of Project Blue Book. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the theorists took this not to mean, oh, it wasn't actually a UFO thing, right? but to instead mean, oh shit, it's too secret even to be on the records of Project Blue Book. <laughs> <laughs> it's the secretest UFO story. <laughs> Gotta get out the Indigo book. <laughs> yes. Uh, but here's the thing. The cover-up was just about the kind of balloon that had been found. Uh, oh, was this like the spy balloon type shit? Sort of. Um, so, Gildenberg, again from the, was it Roswell Rhapsody or what other, the, the Re- Roswell Requiem, the, the article. Roswell um, Rhapsody. Yeah, was actually, he was actually part of Project Mogul, which hmm. is pretty cool. And yeah, it was a very much a Cold War thing. Says Gildenberg, quote, In 1947, I was involved in exciting work based out of New York University where we were developing balloon equipment under contract for a classified U.S. Army Air Force research initiative, mm-hmm. Project Mogul. 
Our job was to develop and test the equipment necessary to detect the upper atmosphere acoustic signatures of Soviet nuclear bomb mm-hmm. tests or ballistic missiles. Mm-hmm. Activities associated with Mogul were based in various locations, and in the summer of 1947, part of the university group was launching test flights from New Mexico's Alamogordo Army Airfield, about 100 miles west by southwest of Roswell. The donning of the U.S.-Soviet arms race made this research extremely sensitive, mm-hmm. and it was secret to such a degree that we did not even know that our own project was called Mogul. <laughs> they were working on Project Mogul and didn't even know that's what it was called. That's pretty cool, actually. Even Professor Emeritus Charles Moore, NYU's constant-level balloon project engineer, <laughs> which apparently they had, yeah. uh, and head of the Mogul work at Alamogordo, was not aware of the tide of the program until 1992, so he didn't really even know what exactly wow, they were doing too holy yeah. shit however our enormous balloon trains were physically visible from long distances so the official explanation if anyone happened to ask was that we were doing vague balloon research using weather balloons project mogul was eventually declassified in 1972 almost a decade before the first stirrings of a popular literature about the roswell incident mm-hmm. initially mogul actually did employ standard weather balloons arranged in huge dusters or flight trains up to 600 feet long Wow. These balloons and the more advanced plastic balloons, which followed, were often spotted over New Mexico and reported as flying saucers in formation. Oh. So they released the balloons in a formation, like in these big trains that were up right. to 600 feet long, and people were reporting the initial, like the, the first reports of flying saucers were them flying in formation. So that's interesting. interesting. Below the balloons, radar reflectors, light kite-like aluminum foil boxes, and assorted other equipment were attached to the lines. The reflectors were a somewhat jury-rigged solution for the technical problem that our balloons were invisible to the marginal radar systems of the period. Mogul used several variations on the radar reflector theme, as did others encountering the same problem, but they're all foil and balsa constructions designed to be as visible as possible to radar for tracking purposes. Jake, this is all obviously just the carefully crafted (laughs) cover-up of a military man (laughs) who has been trained in the art of lies. And the sad thing is that's exactly what people say in response to any explanation <laughs> regarding Roswell. <laughs> so, yeah, balloons were basically invisible right. to radar from the ground. So in order to track where they were, they put these things on the bottom. They were made of like just balsa wood and aluminum foil to reflect radar so they could tell, okay, that's where it is. We can see them now with radar. Just to follow them along, see yeah. how they do. So ours were made to order by a New York toy company, which used a distinctive huh. decorative tape printed with purple or pink flowers and other fanciful shapes. These hieroglyphics, a- alien hieroglyphics were later to be noted <laughs> by various witnesses to the Roswell debris. <laughs> I couldn't make it out. <laughs> yeah. If I had to say, it would look like a flower, maybe a giraffe smiling. <laughs> <laughs> so the cover-up that occurred was not to prevent the American public from knowing the true story of what happened in the New Mexico desert, mm-hmm. but actually to prevent the Soviet Union from finding out too much about the research being done. Mm-hmm. The level of secrecy employed in this case maybe facilitated the future as conspiracies, but also in so doing, it kept everyone off the trail of what the technology actually was, which mm. ultimately was pretty handy to what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of, uh, do you know why carrots are associated with good eyesight? No. It's a pretty fun thing from World War II during the Blitzkrieg, the Luftwaffe would attack at night and drop their bombs on London at nighttime, so... London would go through just um, periodic blackouts where they turn out all the lights so it would be harder for them to find their targets. At some point, the, the Royal Air Force started having counterattacks to intercept bombers on their way across the channel before they could reach England and were able to see the enemy aircraft and you know attack them before they could make it and start doing damage. Right. They started putting out 
propaganda saying that the pilots in the Royal Air Force were able to see so well at night because they were eating their carrots, and the beta-carotene was Mm. good for their eyesight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was to distract the Germans from the actual fact that they had developed a new type of radar that their planes could use to see where the incoming bombers were at nighttime. That's amazing. So that was to to shake them off the trail. So that was a deliberate misdirection. And funny enough, though, I feel like that misdirection has become so stitched into like the cultural mind yeah you know everyone's mean? like oh yeah carrots are good for your eyes yeah it's just it works so well so same kind of deal here damn. this was a not so deliberate misdirection but it still had the same effect where everyone's like oh yeah roswell was a cover-up something right. weird happened the government won't admit what happened so gildenberg's article goes on quote on june 14th 1947 a rancher named mac brazel found a large amount of paper rubber and foil garbage scattered across his land and ignored it <laughs> Mogul Flight Number 4 would have remained lost forever had not a businessman pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold sighted the world's very first flying saucers 10 days later. Hmm. So, yeah, Brazel found this debris. He's like, okay, whatever. And then later on, the first reports of flying saucers in the world started coming out. Quote, while flying over Oregon and Washington State, Arnold spotted and reported several apparent aircraft in a formation like the tail of a kite. With a motion he described as like that of stones or saucers skipped across a pond. Hmm. Press coverage of this sighting coined the phrase flying saucer or flying disc and touched off the world's first and most intense flying saucer craze, which reached its hysterical peak on Independence Day. The hype continued to swell. Reports came pouring in and breathless headlines carried the news across the country. Will Smith. (laughs) Yes. On July 5th, Mac Brazel drove into town where he heard this news for the first time. Once he learned that flying saucers were swarming over America... He hurried back to his ranch to re-examine the debris that he had ignored weeks earlier. It was not the first time that weather balloons had come down on his property, but now that he knew about flying saucers, Mm -hmm. he wasn't convinced that this was another one. Scattered pieces of silvery foil suggested something more futuristic than a balloon. Ooh, yep. Basically, the Roswell crash was nothing. No one thought it was anything. And then the idea of UFOs was introduced. And then people started to think it might be interesting. So it was he wasn't even interested in the debris he had found until he had reason to think, oh, this might be something the weird. The context arrived later. Yes, and then everyone started applying even more context to it once he had come forward with having found it. And the army, for its part, did stir the soup, didn't they? A little bit. And I think there was a certain degree to which they were kind of trying to misdirect people saying yeah they were like we, yeah it was aliens maybe i don't know it's crazy right? kind of allowing that idea to proliferate but again it wasn't really um so much like aliens at the time because people were like oh these things are flying what are they and yeah people started to think aliens but then they had the press release they're like yep yeah, it was this ufo everyone's like it was just a balloon how about that yeah right and everyone's like oh yeah it's a balloon okay never mind and then decades later they're like oh no it was aliens after all man oh man but even then, the solution was found and reported, and, and the case was functionally closed. They thought something was going on, but then they're like, yeah, okay, no, never mind, case closed, whatever. Right. But there was still a tiny enough kernel of question and just the right seasoning of government cover-up <laughs> that ufologists decades down the road were willing to milk this incident for all it was worth. Oh, and gross. rather than employ the <laughs> scientific method, they went with the tried-and-true approach of going out of their way to find any evidence possible until something supports the theory they want to be true. Conspiracy! Yes. So if we were to take a scientific stab at the fact that so many UFO sightings were happening in 1947, and that mystery debris was found on a ranch in New Mexico that same year, what might we hypothesize based on those things? Mm. Maybe we'd think, hey, maybe something was happening in 1947. Let's look at the history of airspace shit in that year. 
<laughs> or maybe we'd find the, by that point, declassified reports on Project Mogul. Mm-hmm. And maybe that would be that. Right. Okay, what was going on in the air in 1947? Oh, something called Project Mogul. What was that? Oh, a bunch of experimental balloons to spy on Soviet bomb testing. Cool. That must have been what it was. That's not what they did. Nope. <laughs> they did not take the uh, the approach uh, of... Yeah, so I that's... Have, I have reasons for why, but... I don't want to dip into the next episode too much. Okay. So we can, we'll, we'll talk to that more later on. Yeah. Another thing too is, so one of the major reasons that people still hold so strongly onto this, and we'll get again more into this next week. Right. Is all of the eyewitnesses to the Roswell incident. Oh, there you Hundreds, go. supposedly. Wow. So what about all of them? How could so many people see something if it didn't even happen? Right. Uh, for that, I want to talk at length about the accuracy of memory. Mm-hmm. And the re- mm-hmm. reliability of our own brains, which is self-adjustable. Yes. To say nothing of just how easy it is to be fed a ton of bullshit when you're actively looking for a story to be true. Mm-hmm. And people knowing that you're wanting something to be true. So like, oh, yeah, like, I'll, I'll spice up my story. Right. But exactly. I'm going to save that for part two of our special report. I'm like holding back so hard right now. Um, because oh I have God. a lot more on those phenomena as they relate to this story, but how they also fold nicely into other stories like Roswell and mm-hmm. how they can proliferate. And also, mm-hmm. just more than we need for today. We've talked long enough. So that, my dear Shell, is what I've got <laughs> regarding Roswell. Very enjoyable to hear the story, my good sir. I feel like I've heard each of those components, but separately of each other. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, and I had heard them all too, and I, I um, ultimately had always piecemeal. Usually, you hear the alien part first, and later on, like, oh, it was just a balloon, and then people saying, no, it wasn't a balloon, and like, analyzing photos of them looking at the balloon like well what about this you can kind of see the symbols on the tape and right all that stuff and it's like well even if you say okay it's it's unidentifiable symbols and stuff it's still tape on foil and some balsa wood <laughs> <laughs> but but is it tape is it foil is it balsa wood <laughs> it's um i will maybe cover a little bit more of i found a cool article showing some of the claims from some of the most remarkable witnesses and then refuting those claims based on the actual facts and why Steph was fucked. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of them was uh, talking about the bodies found and the number of different people saying that they saw the bodies. And there were four bodies and like them being transported to Fort Worth and like being in the truck that transported them and then seeing them like, handling autopsy reports. All these yep, things that yep, came yep. completely out of thin air. Right. When like, yeah, they found just some balloon debris in the desert. And it's like. It's just so interesting how that got blown out of proportion by people who wanted to have the story. Right. And it's like a series, like a chain reaction, or I don't know what to call it exactly, but that aspect we've talked about in previous episodes where a sort of person who's naive to a situation hears a story and hears several different kinds of accounts of that story from several different sources, each additional source kind of like further validates and legitimizes the original phenomenon for sure whatever they're saying and so to have like a public who was so hungry i think at the time for this kind of a narrative yeah and so ready to buy it and further you know embellish it and you know say nothing enrich the the narrative yeah Yeah. this is also during the time like when the story started to proliferate about it being an alien cover-up conspiracy thing this is also like you know around the time of Watergate and stuff. Totally. And so like everyone was prepared to disbelieve the government. Like, right. There's a lot. It was super yeah, deep. It was supplying a need that the public had. And there was a latent, if not still very active, passion I think in the public for that kind of uh, visitors from space, Mars attacks vibe. Yes. 
you know, that was born of the nuclear bomb era, World War II kind of period. If I'm not mistaken, I might be wrong. No, that really but, did um, come up a lot. Like, I think the, that in, came up a lot during that time. Yep. You know, so you have all your sort of like original black and white, you know, goofy sci-fi monster movies. Like that was a huge theme at the period. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was like <laughs> served up perfect <laughs> yes. little, uh, you know, oh, it's really happening. Exactly. And so I think it works well also with the uh, the Fresno Nightcrawlers kind of story where it's right. the same kind of mentality happening now in the modern era where there's this thing. Right. People are like, whoa, it's some kind of weird, crazy alien situation happening. And uh, probably isn't. <laughs> but people probably are still isn't. very, very willing to believe it because they just want to believe. So we'll right. that'll be where we let's, go Let's leave next it there. Week. Yeah. yeah, right. That's a perfect uh, setup for the next episode. Just Spo- picture, spoiler alert. picture the poster above Mulder's desk, <laughs> also in both of our apartments, <laughs> and that is where we're going to go next week. I'm just imagining if that poster was, I like to watch porn. <laughs> <laughs> David Duchovny jokes for all you folks at home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we thank you for joining us on the first part of this two-part journey into uh, the belief in that which you needn't believe. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, and yet... Could you be faulted for enjoying the thrill of that belief? Exactly. But also to resist the seduction of it. Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, take it from the top, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Super Duper Stations. Yeah, let's start it all over. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll hit you up with some cool, fun, science-y, psychological, yes, and other type details next week. Next week. and uh, Or next episode, rather. Yeah. Oh, it seems so long for us. I know. Oh, my God. It is. But we look forward to seeing, hearing... Well, I guess we don't actually encounter you at all, but we ho- look forward to you listening to us then, I guess. <laughs> and if we see you, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you guys so much for showing up and um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.